This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for December 28, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. As a potential 2020 primary challenger to President Trump, Republican Senator Jeff Flake retires at the end of the 115th Congress, having served in the House and one term in the U.S. Senate. On this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast, he discusses his career and some of his experiences, including 9-11, the June 2017 shooting in Alexandria, Virginia at the practice for the annual congressional baseball game, and his candid assessment on President Trump. C-SPAN sat down with the outgoing Republican senator to get his take on his relationship with the president, his own legacy, and what's next. Senator Jeff Lake, what led to your decision to step down after one term? Well, the political outlook. You know, this is a tough time to be here. I uh, never did warm to the president um, in the campaign or as he governed. And uh, in these days, uh, you not only have to embrace the president, you, you have to embrace all of his politics and his behavior in order to uh, you know, get through a Republican primary. And that was never in the cards for me. I just couldn't do it. I would have liked to have stayed maybe another term. Uh, that would probably been it, but, uh, but not in this environment, uh, not given the costs that I would have had to pay. I want to come back to that in a moment, but let's go back to 2000 when you first right. stepped foot here in Washington as a freshman mm-hmm. member of the House. What do you remember? <laughs> well, it was heady times. <laughs> it was myself in a big class. I just saw another member of my class just earlier today. Uh, Mike Pence was part of that class as well. and We were full of vim and vigor at that time, and uh, Republicans were in control of the House and the Senate and, and uh, the White House as well, and something similar to what we have now. But there was really a time during the 90s, uh, you know, the ideas were still in ascendance. Um, you know, Dick Army, Bill Archer talking about flat tax versus fair tax, and it was policy-driven. i just come from a think tank, the Goldwater Institute, so it was really excitement about what we could accomplish in the policy realm. Uh, that's what I remember. And early in your first term, right. September 11th, where were you? Yeah. You know, uh, my wife and I had just flown in from Cuba the, the day before. I've always tried to lift the travel ban on Cuba and establish diplomatic relations. And that was one such effort. And we came in the night before. My wife uh, just missed her flight to Phoenix. And so the next day, September 11th, uh, she got on a plane out of National Airport and, uh, and flew off, and I went back to the Capitol. And I spent the next, obviously, three or four hours trying to figure out where she was. Uh, she ended up in Wichita, Kansas, for three days. And, and I was uh, here in the Judiciary Committee at a hearing in the Rayburn Building in the House when the first plane hit, and then we watched live as the second plane hit. And it was uh, just... Uh, you know, horrible, horrible time, but, uh, but good memories as well, how the House and Senate came together on the steps of the Capitol that night. And, and uh, you know, I think the response was, was good. I was with George W. Bush uh, just last week, reminiscing about, uh, uh, you know, what occurred at that time. And it was, uh, seems like a, a hundred years away right now. The country at that point was united. Yeah. Does it take a tragedy to bring us together? Sometimes. It, it certainly did at that point, and now uh, 
it would probably take at least that. But the country did come together. We voted overwhelmingly, um, you know, to to allow the president to go forward and uh, go after the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, the notion that we could have, you know, an overwhelming vote like that, it would take a tragedy, perhaps. I hope it doesn't, but but that's the reality. More recently, June 14th, 2017. Right. You were in Alexandria, Virginia, getting ready for a baseball game. Right. What happened that morning? You know, we were had just finished batting practice, or I had or a few more people there. And I was standing between uh, home plate and first base with Joe Barton, the manager, and a few others when uh, we heard a shot rang, rang out. We didn't know what it was uh, for a few seconds. We were just kind of looking at each other. It sure sounded like a gunshot to me. And then there was a volley, uh, and uh, somebody yelled, shooter, shooter. And I just remember turning to the dugout and uh, running. That was the only place I could think to go and watching the, the bullets pitch off of the gravel in front of me, uh, but knowing that I had to get away. And so I dove in the dugout and several did after me. And, and then we used somebody's belt to apply a tourniquet to one of the staff, staff members who had been hit in the leg. And uh, I'd pop my head up every once in a while, but then the bullets would go right over our head in the dugout. And then uh, uh, Steve Scalise, he, we could see him down in the field, but couldn't get to him. So it was a long eight or nine minutes until the gunfire stopped, the shooter was taken down, and I, I ran out to Steve and uh, used my batting glove to plug up the, the gunshot wound and look for the other wound, the exit wound, and never found it, and uh, realized that the bullet was, you know, stayed in there, did a lot of damage. But that was a, it was a tough time, and uh, it's really, really kind of um, you know, brought home the, the problems that we have in the country in terms of extreme rhetoric and uh, people getting ginned up to, to look at uh, a bunch of middle-aged men playing baseball and somehow see the enemy <laughs> and open fire. Uh, it's just a, a bad time we're in right now. What was going through your mind initially? What were you thinking? You know, that was uh, what I remember when I turned to the dugout uh, to run. I, I still remember thinking at that time, us here? You know, how and why? Why would we be the targets? Uh, I just remember that thought lingering in my mind. Um, so that's, that's what I was thinking. And, you know, after that, it was just, uh, you know, to stay out of the gunfire and try to help our colleagues. And of course, your former colleague in the House, Gabby Giffords, right, a gunshot victim herself. Yeah, and that uh, you know that was certainly fresh on my mind. That was just a few years before, and um, just terrible tragedy. Um, and I just thought when I got to the hospital uh, later that day with Steve, uh, waiting for the doctor to come out and talk about his condition, it was very similar to being in the hospital in Tucson uh, with Gabby. And uh, that's, you know, too, too many. Um, just don't want to go through that again. How do we solve the gun problem? You know, I think there are things that we can do um, that I think most of us all agree on. I was disappointed to learn that one year after the Las Vegas shooting, we still haven't banned bump stocks, for example. That's a, you know, pretty much agreement across the board, but the administration hasn't taken that action yet. Uh, no fly, no buy. Uh, that's something that we can do. Uh, anybody who uh, is uh, suspect enough 
to be on a no-fly list probably shouldn't be sold a weapon. Also, shouldn't allow uh, young people 18 to 21 uh, to own a handgun. Um, they, I'm sorry, an, an assault weapon, um, semi-automatic uh, AR-15. Uh, they're already prohibited from owning a handgun, but they can still buy that. Uh, they shouldn't be able to. So there are things that we can do, um, and, uh, and we should. You have cast a lot of votes in the House and now in the Senate. Any that you regret? Yeah. Uh, I talked about it in a book I wrote last year. Uh, one was the, the TARP uh, vote. Uh, as a taxpayer and as someone representing taxpayers, I thought it was a, a real affront to uh, spend money to give it to banks, basically, to, to try to cover a problem. I, I mean, I kind of justified it in that I didn't create this problem. Um, I, I shouldn't uh, be voting for it. But in truth, uh, we were where we were. And it was about the only way out. And uh, I, I would have voted for it if I had to. But enough of my colleagues did uh, where I didn't have to. And uh, that, was a, that was a cowardly thing on my part. Ten years later, though, did the program save the economy? It did. It did. Um, I uh, spoken to Hank Paulson and, and others later, George W. Bush, who truly didn't want to do it. But... Uh, but it, we had to do it at that point. And I kind of let my colleagues carry my water for me. I regret that. You, of course, recently made a lot of headlines with Brett Kavanaugh. What's your takeaway? What's our lesson from that? Well, that, you know, I think in an earlier era, he would have garnered 95 votes, or maybe 97 or 100. Uh, but we're in a different era now. Uh, one thing that I felt near the end of that process is that we didn't have full due process. We could have done more. Uh, we Republicans should have called uh, for an FBI investigation earlier. And uh, that's why I felt uh, that we ought to put, hit the pause button and, and do what we can to, to make sure that, one, people in this institution felt better about it. I got to that committee uh, that morning and just saw the food fight you know, between Republicans and Democrats, Democrats threatening to walk out of the vote. And, and I thought, this is just... Uh, this isn't good. This isn't good for this institution. It's certainly not good for the court to have somebody, if he's either going to be rejected or put on the court with a cloud. And uh, so I, I felt that uh, what I did was the right thing. It wasn't, wasn't popular at the time, I can tell you that. Well, Sean Hannity, you probably heard this, but he said, quote, of course, Republicans predictably caved and flake flaked in a big way and just uh, bought the Democrats more time to seek, search, destroy, bludgeon, getting a delay under the guise of an FBI investigation. Right. Uh, that, that's what uh, a lot of my colleagues thought at the time. And that's what I heard, believe me, back in the ante room. But uh, I teamed up with Chris Coons. I wanted at least some Democrats to say, we'll feel better about the process. We may not change our votes, but we'll feel better about the process if we have a delay. And in the end, the delay proved to be a good thing, in my view. The FBI conducted an investigation. Uh, some wished it would have been more broad. I wish we would have started it earlier, and it had been more broad. But it did. It was thorough, and, uh, and I think it helped the country and, and certainly the court. Have you since talked to Justice Kavanaugh? I've not. He, he, uh, he did uh, send me a, a voicemail. That, that, uh, I've, I've, frankly, I've, I've looked at what's happened since he's been uh, you know, confirmed, and, and to see 
our party kind of spiking the ball in the end zone. It just, uh, just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. Um, this is an impartial referee that we're putting on the court. I thought he gave a magnanimous um, and appropriate speech at the White House. But the fact that there's even an event to celebrate, you know, with only Republicans there, and no Democrats, I just didn't think that that was right. And so I, I haven't said much about it. How would you fix our broken politics? Well, one, I, I like the Senate rules. I, I love the House. I loved serving there for 12 years. But I wanted to come to the Senate because of the filibuster rule, uh, the requirement, uh, the need, necessity, uh, the you know, desirability of, of forcing the parties together. And, uh, and the Senate rules do that. Unfortunately, we've, we've made it still difficult, uh, and we get by with the barest of majorities. Um, but I, I, uh, I think that, that you know, those rules need to stay in the Senate. Some want to get rid of them so we can be a majoritarian institution just like the House. I think that would be a big mistake um, because we've, to fix this, the big problems that we've got to solve in this country, uh, fiscal issues, um, making Social Security or Medicare sustainable, for example, uh, getting this debt and deficit under control, those things can only be done if both parties buy in, uh, no one party will ever take the risk politically to do it. We've got to buy in. And when you look at uh, you know, previous times, whether it's in the 80s or even the 97 Budget Act, uh, you, uh, you've seen when the parties are at their best, when they come together. And uh, I, I, fortunately, I experienced that when I first came to the Senate. I immediately joined a gang, <laughs> a gang of eight on immigration, uh, four Republicans, four Democrats. We met uh, almost every night for seven months to hammer out a compromise. And then we all protected that bill through the committee process. And then again on the Senate floor, uh, amended it, uh, I think a hundred times or so in committee and I think a dozen more times on the floor and passed it 68 to 32. It's the way the Senate used to work. Uh, it didn't go anywhere in the House and the Senate really hasn't returned to that process on any other issue since. And it's a shame. We've got to get back to it. What's your relationship been like with the Senate leadership, Mitch McConnell and others? Sometimes good, sometimes strained. Uh, because, uh, you know, for example, last week when I called for a delay, um, that was not well received by the leadership. It was not. <laughs> and uh, there have been other times as well uh, when I've you know, in the Senate, you can do that. You have leverage, whether it's on a vote on tariffs or something else. You can use your leverage as you should. That's what senators do. You're not only a senator, but also, I guess, a reality TV star. What was Rival <laughs> Survival like, and how did that come about? Uh, you know, nine years ago, I, well, I back it up my entire life, I've loved to read survival stories. Uh, Sailing Adventures Gone Bad is my favorite genre. And uh, finally, my wife, I always talked about, uh, I wonder if I could survive on a deserted island. And she said, uh, you know, if this is your midlife crisis, would you get it over with? <laughs> Keep talking about it. And so I marooned myself on a Pacific island uh, in 2009 and survived for a week with no food, uh, just a few tools, a spear and whatnot to spearfish. And, uh, I enjoyed it so much. A couple years later, I took my two youngest sons, and we had the same experience. And then 
Then I thought when I got here to the Senate and I could see just very little interaction between the parties, I thought we ought to prove that Republicans and Democrats can get along. So I got with Martin Heinrich, who is a good spear fisherman. I thought he could be useful. <laughs> and uh, we uh, teamed up and uh, wanted to go back to the island and prove that Republicans and Democrats can get along. Where did you go? We went back to the Marshall Islands, where, where I'd done the other two uh, survival experiences. And we, uh, we went to Discovery Channel and said, we're going to take a GoPro camera and if you want the footage afterwards for one of your shows. And they said, no, we, we want to come film it. And so we, for a, almost a year, planned it uh, through the ethics process and everything else we had to get through with not one of our colleagues knowing that we were doing it until we got back. And uh, it was an incredible experience. Martin's a great guy. We've teamed up together on legislation since, uh, on uh, you know, forest health issues, uh, public uh, lands issues. And uh, um, we had basically a machete between us. <laughs> that was about it. And it was tough, especially with no water. I mean, you can only drink coconut water for so long. <laughs> and, uh, but we got back, we went on kind of the circuit to promote the show, Rival Survival, that uh, Discovery Channel aired between versions of Naked and Afraid, <laughs> which we were certainly not naked. <laughs> afraid, yes, but, uh, but we uh, went on Letterman and Stephen Colbert ran a clip of us uh, you know, eating raw clam or whatever there and said, uh, Flake and Heinrich proved once and for all that Republicans and Democrats can get along if death is the only option. <laughs> so for what it's worth, empirically, we've proven it. What did you learn about your colleague from New Mexico? <laughs> One, that he can build a good shelter. He's an engineer and uh, he, was, he was very good at that. We, first night we got there, it was just torrential rain and we needed it. And, uh, and he's, you know, they say that, uh, you know, it's tough to question your colleagues' motives if you know their wife's name or their kid's name, uh, if you know something about them. And I found that certainly to be the case, that uh, the more you know about your colleagues, uh, the more you, you can trust them. And that's what has been missing here for a long time is trust. Trust that uh, people won't take the process and use it to their ends and, and shut others out. Uh, Trust that you can, you can get to a, a solution eventually if you can work together. And, and that's what uh, led uh, Chris Coons and me uh, last week to do what we did. Chris and I have traveled together a lot, uh, particularly in Africa where we both spent part of our, our youth. And uh, uh, I know Chris and trust him and he, he says the same. And uh, so I think we need more of that. I don't know how many of us can maroon ourselves on deserted islands, uh, but we ought to spend more time with each other and, and uh, trust each other a little more. Well, let me take that one step further. How did you and Senator Coons develop that relationship? You know, we, we both serve on the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he chaired the Africa Subcommittee before I got to the Senate for a couple of years, and the first two years I was here. And then when uh, Republicans took control, I chaired it. And uh, so we've traveled to Africa a number of times together, uh, once with President Obama, uh, several times on our own, and we've sponsored legislation together on wildlife preservation, uh, Zadera uh, economic sanctions to try to push Zimbabwe in the right direction. So we've worked together on these things, as well as, as some others uh, um, on the Judiciary Committee. And so I, I, I knew him well enough that uh, when he uh, gave his speech, uh, I knew that that was intended for me, 
And he, he acknowledges that, and, and it did move me um, that, that we could work together, that what they were requesting, a one-week delay, uh, limited in, you know, in time and scope, w would be acceptable. And so that's what uh, encouraged me to get up and, and ask him to go to the anteroom. And then what? Well, we, uh, we, we talked and soon attracted a little attention when my side of the aisle realized that something was afoot and that I might not be a yes vote. Uh, so uh, a lot of my colleagues came forward and said a lot what Sean Hannity did, that uh, you know, this will just lead to more allegations coming forward. This will be an endless loop that we can't get through. Uh, we can't do this, um, and they had every reason why we shouldn't. Uh, but uh, I felt strongly that we could, and Chris backed that up, and, and uh, Chris kept up his side of the bargain. He went out and said good things about it, saying that uh, we would all feel better if we had this investigation. Um, so I, I went and voted to move it along the process, but only if we had an FBI investigation. And Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, called and said that they would back me up, and that was all it took. They, the leadership had to, to deal with us. When you saw Leader McConnell, what did he tell you? <laughs> well, his effort was still to try to keep it, you know, to our time frame, you know, where we could vote the next day. Can we do a very quick FBI investigation? Uh, and we said, no, no, it has to be, you know, up to a week. It doesn't need to be more than a week. But uh, I, I can say the leadership was not happy. They, they weren't, but they knew that that was the only way uh, they might be able to, to get our vote. And uh, so we presented it, and uh, they had to accept it. Do you think, looking back, that Senator Feinstein should have at least had a conversation with Chairman Chuck Rassley about the letter yes, early on? I do. I do. I, I'm not one that believes that she's the one that leaked it. I've dealt with her for a long time, and, and uh, I think that she did her best to protect uh, uh, Dr. Ford, uh, but, but somebody leaked it at some point, and, and that was really you know, not fair to, to Dr. Ford. But uh, I, I do think that it would have been better uh, had they sat down early on and said, here's a serious allegation, let's treat it in a way that, uh, that really honors the institution and, and honors those who, uh, who are involved. We are in the Russell Senate Office Building. <laughs> Should it be the McCain Senate office building? I'd, I'd like that. I think that would solve a number of uh, purposes. John McCain uh, needs to be recognized here, and uh, that would be an appropriate way, I believe. Do you remember the first time you met him? You know, it was uh, when I was in, well, the first one was memorable, when I was here as an intern. Uh, I wasn't his intern. I was Dennis DeConcini, the, the Democratic senator from Arizona's intern. I often joke with McCain that his standards were too high for me and I couldn't make it under. But, uh, but I met him during that time. I had admired him from afar uh, in Arizona, uh, you know, certainly when I, I was there, but I'd been away at school out of state for a while. But uh, I was immediately impressed and, you know, just given his history and, and what he'd been through. But, uh, but over the years, uh, that admiration only grew. And uh, it's been a real honor uh, for the last six years, uh, you know, to have served with him. He, of course, had the seat that Barry Goldwater once had. What's his so legacy? So do I. Uh, Barry Goldwater held both seats. <laughs> so, so we always, you know, there's a bit of trivia, but he held it right immediately after. But Goldwater ran for president, vacated the seat, and then ran for the other one. So 
both senators in Arizona can always say they held Goldwater seat. <laughs> but uh, Senator McCain, uh, uh, you know, he a lot like Goldwater in so many ways. So, yeah. The Goldwater legacy in the country and in the Republican Party, what is it? Oh, it's, uh, you know, rugged individualism, uh, libertarian leaning, independent conservatism. Uh, kind of, you know, shortened as Arizona conservatism, I guess, where you uh, obviously believe in principles of limited government, economic freedom, individual responsibility, uh, but uh, with a maverick flair, I guess. You will walk out these doors for a final time in December. What do you think you'll be thinking? You know, that this has been a, a real honor and a privilege. Uh, I'm not leaving because I don't like the institution or the people. This is a wonderful system that we have here. Uh, it's a system that is so good that it, uh, it you know, corrects for the, the foibles of all of us who, who make our way through it. Uh, so I, I will leave here with more respect for the institution that I came here with. Um, and uh, with a real appreciation for the friendships that I've had uh, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, just wonderful people here. I hope that, uh, that, that we can get along better and, and do more, you know, make, make us worthy of the institution that this is. What's next? Uh, you know, I, I plan to stay involved, certainly. Um, but, uh, but after 18 years, it's time for a little break, at least while the fever cools. <laughs> so, so I, you know, get uh, reacquainted with a, a lot of friends and family that I haven't spent enough time with. Uh, we, our youngest child, we just put on a plane last week uh, for a Mormon mission. So we're empty nesters officially. <laughs> My wife continually reminds me we did this completely backwards. <laughs> we raised five kids during the past... 18 years while I traveled back and forth. But it just says what a wonderful woman she is and, and what she did and put up with during this time. But uh, we, obviously there are sacrifices, but there are a lot of advantages that come as well. And, and we've, uh, we've been very blessed. Your faith is very important. It is. One final question, because you were in New Hampshire. Are you thinking about running for president? Um, you know, every senator <laughs> thinks of that. Some not very seriously. I'm probably one of those. Uh, having said that, I do hope that somebody does run in the primary against the president. I think the Republicans need to be reminded of what conservatism really is and what it means to be decent. Um, and, uh, and we haven't had that kind of politics lately. And I, 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 I fear for the future of the party if we don't remember who we are and what uh, principled conservatism really is and decency, uh, we've, we've got to get back to it. And uh, the McCain, you know, that, that whole week, uh, the commemoration of his life and his politics was just an additional reminder of the stark differences that there are uh, sometimes in politicians. And uh, I think we've, as a Republican Party, certainly have got to get back to the kind of uh, decency that has characterized the party for a while. Because some say it is the party of Trump. Would the GOP embrace that message? Well, it is disturbing. I mean, the president is who he is, and I'm not sure he's going to change. But you, when you see him at a rally, the disturbing thing isn't so much what he says anymore. It's the cheers, you know, from people behind him and the chance of lock her up, for example, uh, that's just unseemly. 
and, uh, and it, it does make me fear that it's going to be a longer process to get out of this uh, than, it, uh, than it should be. But, but we will. We have to. Um, anger and resentment are not a governing philosophy. And, and uh, ultimately, voters will again value those who can govern and those who treat each other with respect. Uh, we have to because we have too big a problems uh, to solve uh, than we can do with one party. If you were to run, do you know what you'd be up against? Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. It's, I mean, it's the entire machine. This, this is the president's party right now, no doubt. Uh, and to win in a Republican primary around the country, you, you have to really embrace the president's policies and condone his behavior. And uh, that's, that's the bottom line right now. But it won't always be that way. Um, and uh, over time, we'll realize where we need to go. Finally, for you or anyone that would challenge him, what's the timeline? Oh, you know, I, I think in normal times you get started right after the midterms, but uh, that, that's not necessarily the case here. Um, you know, depending on uh, what uh, the economy's like, uh, what else goes on with foreign policy, uh, investigations, whatever, those all could, could impact things uh, in a far longer time frame than perhaps we're used to. So I, I do hope that there are other candidates out there, like I said, if nothing else, to remind Republicans of what we, we used to and will need to stand for uh, if we're going to be a major force in the future. But you're at least interested or considering it? Uh, well, I, I'm not ruling it out, um, but uh, I, you know, I, I need a break. <laughs> What's the first thing you're going to do when you leave? <laughs> you know, not have to worry about a schedule coming back and be able to spend a couple of weeks uh, in the wintertime in Arizona, uh, which is a good place to be. Senator Jeff Flake, we thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, available wherever you download your favorite podcast or on the web at cspan.org. <laughs>